Well, welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church again. Welcome to this Blossom Valley weekend. We're um, three weeks into our current message series, Family Matters. Uh, we kicked off the series by exploring, uh, really actually exploding the myth that God uses perfect families to, to, to work his will in the world. And what a relief that is to find out that actually when God decided to, to, to bring rescue and to, to seek healing for the world, he actually chose one very flawed family. He continues to choose flawed families. Look around. He continues to use us. And then last week, Doris uh, reflected on God's mothering care of us through a number of images we see throughout the Bible. And I loved, I loved your invitation of how, how we can look back at how God carried us in the past. And then as we look forward to the things that maybe we're anxious about, to, to know that God will carry us in the future. Thank you, Doris, for your faithful preaching. I'm excited about this series because family really does matter. It matters, and the more we get God's perspective on family life, the more I believe we'll experience transformation in our lives, but as a result, God works transformation in others' lives. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about what it means for us, though, to be members of two families at the same time. Uh, the family into which you were born, or the family that you're part of now, but also the family into which, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you've been reborn. That is our, our biological, our adoptive family, the, the family we would say that's our family, and of course our spiritual family, which is called the church. And we need to talk about this as we move forward in the series because we'll, we'll keep kind of talking about our family and we'll, kind of, we'll be mentioning our church family and we'll be, we'll be kind of going back and forth. And so we want to draw it out here at the, at the beginning because as, as important and significant and, and we believe uh, you know, God designed and, and something that God works through as our, our, our core family units are, they're really only properly understood within the context of God's larger family. And unless we understand them in that context and work through that as followers of Jesus, of, of how we live into those realities in the context of our larger family, we won't actually get either family right. You know, when you become a follower of Jesus, uh, expressing uh, this trust that Jesus is the Son of God, he died for you, he rose again from the dead, you were, the phrase that Jesus used, you were born again into God's family. It's this very basic Christian teaching. And some, you know, some of you have been raised hearing that all of your lives, but for some of us, this might be newer. We read in, in John chapter 1, uh, 12 and 13, that to all who believed him, that is Jesus, and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. Not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. And this is so crucial that Jesus told one of the religious leaders of his day, a guy who everyone would consider like top drawer, holy, super cool, every, you know, he got it all together, told this guy that everybody, no matter their background, no matter their spirituality, no matter their sense of faith or no faith, intellect, family of origin, however good or bad or ugly or strange it was, that everyone needed to be born again, become a new kid in God's family. And that when that new birth happened, and when that new birth occurs, our, our primary family shifts from our family of origin to what you could call our family of, of destiny. That all of our relationships from that point on, relationships with mom, with dad, relationships with brother and sister, relationships with our own kids, with friends, or within the church, or neighbors, or enemies, or strangers, all relationships are now defined 
First, by who we are now as children of God, as members of his family. That sets the tone for all those relationships. And then only secondarily by our sort of flesh and blood, ethnic, biological, adoptive families. This is, this is amazing. It means that our lives are actually expanded. Our relationships are expanded. We, we get in now because of what God has done on something larger. We're now part of this family that has now got people in it, brothers and, and sisters in it, from all these different nations. And everywhere you can go in the world, there's not a place you can drop into where you wouldn't find, if you could look, if you could find them, a brother or a sister, a gathering of your family members. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to worship with other people who don't speak your language. But it's a beautiful thing to sing songs, well, actually try to sing songs in a language that you don't understand. It's like getting Pentecostal all over again. But I, I remember times when I was in worship settings, I was in Haiti for a while and other, other places where, where you just are with, worshiping with a group of people and they're singing songs in a language you did not understand, but somehow being aware that I'm with my brothers and sisters, even if I don't fully get what's going on, we are part of the family together. It's amazing. But the truth is, this shift of primary family can raise tensions for us. You realize that? Maybe you immediately can think of some of those tensions. Because, you know, strangely enough, the values of these two families are not always the same. Did you know that? There can be differences. I mean... Think of a kid who's graduated from high school and really feel that God wants them to, to serve the, the poor through missions. But family would kind of want them to save some of that money for college. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you yourself want to, want to serve in your church family more significantly, but your, part, your partner actually wants to camp on more weekends, and it makes it difficult. Or perhaps you grew up in a family where uh, having this big outburst of rage or, or, or multiple days or weeks of silent treatment were the way you dealt with conflict. Like that was the family value. That's how we dealt with conflict. But now you're in a family where we are to deal with conflict by speaking the truth in love, by seeking forgiveness through honest communication, by treating one another as Christ has treated us. These are different family values. Maybe through the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, you've been growing in a sense that you need to get more honest about your past, about some things that were hurtful. But you're in a family that has made it a high priority to keep things looking good. would be very angry with you if you started getting real about some of your family hurt. Now, the chances are, when I say the word tension that exists between your two families, that you could literally fill in the blanks from your own experience. You could think about some of the cultural values that you're raised with, the family values you're raised with, in terms of how you think about money or use it, how you view sex or sexual relationships, um, ways that you parent or think about career, maybe politics or sports or even church or gender roles. These all can be instances where God's family values come into conflict with the family values we grew up with. And there's moments where we feel this tension between who we are and how we are to live. We feel like we're being forced to choose if we're really aware of who we're going to obey, which family we're going to follow. We've been brought into a new family. We're learning with the Holy Spirit's guidance of how to live in this new family. And yet we are still members of our original family. And when these two families conflict, who do we follow? Or... To make the point simple, which family is truly first? 
And these are hard questions. I, I know for some of us, actually, these might represent some of the most difficult realities we wrestle with because of our, our family situation, our family of origin situation, our current reality, where it can feel like following Jesus means I'm going to disappoint someone, and I have to always choose, which, you know, which father am I going to disappoint? Which family member am I going to let down? Well, how do we, how do we wrestle through that? I'd like to invite us today to look at the life of Jesus. Two different stories. Jesus loved his earthly parents, served them, but he also put his first family first. And by following his example, I think it'll help us as we grapple with this. Well, the first time we see this family dilemma is in the famous story in Jesus' life, one of the only snippets we have of his uh, early life, which is when he was 12 years old. Jesus, you may remember, was born into a a poor Jewish family that had the uh, ancient and royal roots. Uh, devout Jewish home. They worked blue-collar jobs up in the north of Israel. And everything in Jewish culture would have placed family and faith as like seamless top priorities in life. Honoring your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. It was central to how faithful Jews would have honored God in their daily lives. And as the oldest son in a patriarchal society, you know, Jesus was raised with all the cultural expectations that he would care for the family, especially after his dad died. And we find in the story, he doesn't explicitly say it, but he, he died somewhere in there. And, and, and he, Jesus would have been raised with all the expectations that he would take care of the family. He would take care of the family business. He would be responsible for the extended family. And by every indication, Jesus was a good Jewish son. He learned his father's carpentry trade. He served in his family business, all in the context of devotion to God. But when Jesus was 12... Right when Jewish boys were being considered men, he revealed where his true loyalties lay. And we read about it in an early story in Luke. Luke's the third story in the New Testament. In chapter 2, we read this. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, uh, they went up to the festival according to the custom. But after the the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Whoops. Ever left your kid at a truck stop? (laughs) Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Because, of course, that's where you'd find him, right? Among his family. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Some translations say, be about my father's business. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Why were you searching for me, Jesus said. Didn't you know? It's like, duh. Didn't you know I had to be in my... Father's house. Imagine how confusing this must have been for Mary and Joseph. But even at 12 years old, Jesus was making his primary family loyalty clear. He was the son of his father first, Joseph second. He must be in his father's house first. 
Mary's house second. He was going to prioritize his father's business first, and he would give attention to Mary and Joseph's business, yes, but second. Now, it's only hinted at here, and we see immediately in the story that Jesus doesn't, at this time, leave Mary and Joseph. He, He remains with them. He's obedient. He's submissive. He serves. He helps. He loves. In the context of his second family, growing in favor with God and with man, but But he does this as the son of his heavenly father first, who in that sense had lent him to his earthly father. Jesus' obedience to Joseph and Mary was then actually an expression of his devotion, his loyalty to his father, God. This early story signals an important truth, that Jesus' identity and his purpose was not defined by Mary and Joseph. It wasn't defined by his ancient Jewish bloodline. It wasn't defined by cultural expectations or by social norms or even by the sacrosanct family. No, Jesus' identity and purpose, he understood it even at 12, was defined by his true father and his kingdom business. Now, you need to know how profoundly countercultural this would have seemed for them. How odd. We live in an era where we sort of glorify the family rebel, you know. They didn't glorify family rebels back then. You know what they did with them? They stoned them, or at least they shunned them. They weren't looked up at in any way. Jesus, in declaring a higher allegiance than his local family, he introduces a very uncomfortable tension, even into our own lives. You know what? When I reflect on my own family of origin, this is one of the areas where I actually think my parents really shined. I'm really thankful for them. My parents were not perfect parents. But they raised us with this deep conviction that we were always God's kids first and their kids second. This is reinforced in multiple conversations all through the years I was growing up. So in any conversation about things that were going on, even a conflict that was happening, or, or things about the future, discussions about purpose or direction or identity, they were always in the context of our purpose and our identity as members of God's family together. That that defined us first. You know, the fact that we were long-standing Brits and God saved the Queen and all that. Oh, yeah, we like that. But, but that was second. My parents raised me not to ask, even, even implicitly ask, what would please mom and dad? But rather, again and again and again, God, what does God want you to do? What is God calling you to do? And this was not always easy for them. There were times when I know I made choices that were really uncomfortable. I mentioned earlier that I was in Haiti. Well, I was in Haiti in a very tumultuous political time, and I was only 17. And I remember how much stress and anxiety that put on my parents long before email, broken phone lines. You know, they'd only hear from me every, like, three or four weeks. And when, when there's meltdown going on on the nightly news, that's tough for mom and dad to remember whose son he is first. So they had to make decisions along the way to entrust that. I mean, even when I said I didn't want to farm, I didn't want to take the family farm, I instead wanted to go into ministry, it was, I needed to know from my parents, 100% support. You follow what the Father is calling you to do. And I, I, I'm super thankful for that because they modeled for me how I, I think we are to parent our kids, those of us who have them, that we are to, to raise our kids in the context of a larger family and orient them, as I raise my own sons, orient them ultimately as children of our Heavenly Father, that my sons are actually my brothers in Christ. 
I'm their father only second. Well, what Jesus hints at here about family loyalty gets super clear when he turns about a 30. After 18 years of working faithfully in his father's carpentry business, Jesus begins to work exclusively in his heavenly father's business, the business for which he came, the business for which he would die. In Mark's gospel, the second uh, gospel in the New Testament, uh, Jesus starts his ministry with a bang. We don't get a whole lot of background information. It's just, boom, he's on the scene. He announces that God's kingdom has come. He calls people to turn their lives around and to follow him and to put proof to his claim. He's healing sick people. He's, he, he's forgiving sins, and he's freeing people who have been tormented by evil spirits. And it's just crazy. It's just like a whirlwind going on around him. And, and all the while he's doing this, he's gathering a group of people to himself, a group of disciples, intentionally choosing 12 of them, not 13, not 7, 12, to signal that the new thing he's doing is actually the creation of a new family, a new family of God, who would actually secede the original 12 tribes. This was a new Israel, new family of God thing that Jesus was doing. And everywhere Jesus went, He was swamped with crowds. Things got so crazy just by the end of chapter 3 that Jesus didn't even have time to eat. And you know what happens when moms hear this? Well, his mom got wind. And so mom did what moms do when they find their sons aren't eating, right? She decides it's time for an intervention. (laughs) And so she rallies Jesus' brothers. Dad's obviously dead at this point. She rallies Jesus' younger brothers, and they go and find Jesus. And here's how the story went. So uh, one time Jesus entered the house. The crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. You get that? Jesus' own family heard what jesus was doing all the good things but all the crazy things like appointing 12 disciples I mean, that's wild but now he's not he, they thought he had lost his mind he has gone crazy the things he was doing the way he was doing it had become shameful to them as a family and they needed to come they need to take jesus in hand they need to bring him home lock him in a room do whatever they need to do to kind of get his mind back before their family's name was ruined you're going to talk some sense into him. Get him to act a little more appropriately with a little more balance in his life. Do you see how this is a family values clash going on? It's exactly what's happening here. There was a values clash happening. What's Jesus going to do with this? Well, the story reads on. Jesus' and mother, mother and brothers come to see him. They stood outside. Jesus is in a house, right? They stood outside and they sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. See it in your mind? You see Jesus inside a house, crowded with people, and out there, kind of beyond the porch, and maybe at the end of the laneway, there's Jesus' mother and brothers. They send a messenger in. They don't come in themselves. And, and they're asking Jesus, could you just, you know, pause, pause your teaching for a moment, go out and talk to mom. Now, let me ask you, in a culture that reveres the family, where the oldest son, who's responsible for this family, not only economically responsible, but spiritually responsible and socially responsible and reputationally responsible. That's not a real word. My word check said it wasn't, but I use it anyway. Reputationally responsible. He's asked to come out and 
talk to his by now widowed mom who's traveled to see him, what is the right response, people? What's the good example that this young rabbi is going to set for his newfound followers? I mean, how do you obey the ten, you know, one of the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother in this particular situation? Anyone? It's an absolute no-brainer. You go outside and you talk to mom. There's no other option. No other cultural option, no other expectation. You tell everyone who's around you who is clearly less important than mom to just sit and wait because you've got to take a break. And everyone, without exception, was looking for that response. Mom's outside. Everybody take five. Somebody order pizza. We'll just, you know, we'll reconvene in a bit. But that is not what Jesus does. Counter to all expectations, what we get is a mic drop from Jesus. You know, your mother, your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, listen to this reply. Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And everyone's like, then he looked around those who were around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother. And sister and mother. The room would have just had all the air sucked out of it at that very moment. Now, most of us are way too rebellious at heart, too modern, too individualistic, too white, to really feel the offensiveness of these words here. But these are undoubtedly probably the most shocking words ever spoken from the mouth of Jesus. And they put to rest for good the question of whose family is ultimately first. Now, people from an Asian background or an indigenous culture, they feel the pain of these words. They feel it deep. So much more than the rest of us often do. Jesus, rather than affirming his family of origin, rather than giving that kind of honor to mom, rather than allowing his blood family to have authority over him. He rejects their claim of control. And then, and then he redraws the family line. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And the answer would have seemed culturally obvious to everyone in earshot. They were just standing outside. But it's not obvious at all. Not based on what Jesus is doing. Jesus says family is no longer defined primarily by who gave you birth originally. But it's now defined by who gives you new birth spiritually. Rodney Clapp in his great book, Families at the Crossroads, he said this. He said, Jesus' primary family is not composed of those who share his genetic makeup but of those who share his obedient spirit. And can I just take a little side note here? You should all be cheering right now, because if it weren't for that, you'd be on the outside too. When he redrew the family line, guess who got included? Us! Woo! Woo! Yeah, cheer! Yeah! Okay, that wasn't in my notes at all. But if you think Jesus is just getting snarky here, I need you to look again. 
though he was rejecting the right of mother and brother to define his identity and purpose, his mission, to try to control what he's doing, he wasn't barring them from the house. The original family of Jesus, they can be part of this new family too, and we know from the story that they did. They weren't told to stay outside. They could come in, they could sit, they could learn, they could join. But a shift had to happen. They could enter the house not as family who had a prior claim on Jesus, but as disciples who were joining his new family movement, which included many more than just the relatives. Mary could no longer at this point just claim to be Jesus' mom. Now, she needs to actually become a disciple. Well, how do we make sense of this? Let me show you with you a little bit of how I'm working this through. Give me a few more minutes and we'll wrap up. The first thing is obvious. That first family is first. That God's family is first. That what God has done in Jesus, in making us part of his family, is the most important thing that God has done in history. It is the most important thing that God is doing in your life now. The most important. That God's family is now our first family, which means that we confess that he is our father, that it is with his family and according to his values that we live. That whenever we experience a values clash between our old family and our new family, such as the way we handle conflict or the way that we treat people who are different from us or the way we prioritize our time, that when we come into those values clashes, we have to remember, we have to appeal to the Holy Spirit to teach us how do we live according to our primary family, God's family, which is first. And this family is amazing. This first family that we've been brought into, I've already been alluding to it. And Paul in Galatians, he says, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's an astonishing statement for a, a Jewish Pharisee to be making about a bunch of Gentile heathens from Galatia. Yeah. You're all children of God, Paul says. All of you have been united with Christ in baptism and put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. Slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus again. I think the cheers would have just been coming up from the crowd at this incredible thing. And then he says, and now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. That family that God chose to work through and bring blessing to the world, you're part of that family. You're his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham, what was the promise? The promise that through this family, there would be blessing to the whole world. The promise to Abraham belongs to you. Woo! Yeah, can we practice that? Woo! Yeah, it's like a big cheer, you know. God's family is amazing. It's our first family. But it does mean that all other family is second. And some of you are cheering at that idea. Because you've been looking for a reason to relativize the family that you grew up with, right? I know that's true because you're thankful. This is a message of hope that you're not bound by your family of origin. You can come into a new family and you can experience your life. Whoa! Some of you are cringing because you've taken 
your primary family, your family of origin or the family of... And you've elevated it to a status that is clearly in conflict with what the Bible teaches us about God's family. You've perhaps even idolized it. And so we can be experiencing some tension even right now at the idea that all other family is second. But listen to this. I want to quote. I don't do this very often, but let me give you another quote from Rodney Clapp. said, so Jesus did not expect biological family to be denied or eliminated. He did, however, decenter and relativize it. He did not see it, that is the family, the family unit, as the vehicle of salvation. He expected first family, the family of the kingdom, to grow evangelistically, go make disciples, rather than biologically, be fruitful and multiply. Entrance to the kingdom, Clap goes on, entrance to the kingdom, in fact, required a second birth, this time of water and the spirit. Now for those who follow Jesus, the critical blood, the blood that most significantly determines their identity and character is not the blood of the biological family. It is the blood of the lamb. Whether this comes as really great news to you or whether this is a challenge to you, We are called to grapple with the fact that if we are followers of Jesus, our primary family is the family of Jesus. All other family is secondary. How we work that out means that we've got to figure out, is this breaking idolatry in my life? Is this this putting together things in my life that I haven't been able to place before? What's going on here? And I think that leads us to our, our, our third point which is that we are called to love our second family. You can think of your own kids. You can think of your mom and dad. You can think of your standard family, the, the people that you really do see at reunions and wonder, am I really related to these people? You know, this second family. We are called to love our second family. Whether we have a broken family and we, we, we're, we're wishing we could just forget about them, we're called to love them. Whether we're in the context of family we've tended to idolize, we're called to love them too. But we're called to love them in the context of our first family. And our first family, the fact that we are members of God's household and the way that he operates and the way he calls us to live and all through the New Testament we're told over and over again how we are to relate to one another in this new family. All these values, they put our relationships now in our existing um, blood families or adoptive families, our kids, our extended family. They put them in a context where we are now supposed to relate to them according to God's family values, according to God's family rules. We're to orient our goals for our kids. We're to, to, to pray through and think about our family background. We're supposed to arrange even our family values around and in the context of how God is shaping all of us as members of his first family. Let me, let me just be really practical here. The reality is you could walk away today and hear a message that says, oh, who cares about my kids? Or I guess I don't need to worry about my marriage then. Well, that would be a total misinterpretation of what God is doing. Because what he actually is calling us to do is to, is to love in the context of our families according to his values. It means that we're actually going to be able to love our kids according to how God is shaping them as members of his family. And I promise you, you'll be a better parent if you're oriented around the values that God has, the the kingdom values of our Father for our kids. 
if we will adopt and, and embrace who we are as a member of God family, God's family, it will change the way you relate if you are married in a marriage relationship. Because now you won't just default to values that you were raised with or you saw modeled. Now you actually examine those critically in the light of who God has called you to be and how he's instructed us to be in a marriage relationship in the Bible. It'll challenge those things because now we're members of God's family first. For those many of us who are single, it reminds us that, oh, I don't have to attain this certain standard, cultural standard of what it means to be family. I can live and serve in my first family as a full-fledged member. I don't have to be married. I don't have to have kids. I've already got a family. In fact, if I look around me, I see quite a few kids. I can be the, the mother or the father to as well. That we in the first family give context to the second family. It enables us to actually begin to see the second family raised up and loved, I believe, with a greater heart, with a greater sense of how God is shaping us, moving our, each other and, and loving kids that are beyond our own families and embracing each other as the family and seeing what God and how he wants to transform us as families into his family. Well, really quick application. What do we do with this? The first thing is, I think we need to confess that the Father really is our primary authority. That if you are a follower of Jesus, that you are a member of God's family first. And you might need to take this away today. You need to take that and really work that through. What does it mean that he's my father first? That, that I, I need to be oriented around my father's family first. What does that mean? But I believe that if you are a follower of Jesus, it actually starts with confessing that that is true. Even if you aren't sure what that means yet, saying, God, you are my father. You are my primary authority. I am in your family. And second, I think to really praise God for the benefits of being part of this family. The benefits to you, the benefits to others, the benefits for people who don't have much of a blood family or they're so estranged or there's so much difficulty that they can find family. The benefits for people who are single, the benefits for people who are married, the benefits for all of us to be part of this not just us, but this multi-ethnic, multilingual family of God that is all over the world to praise God for the benefits of being one in Christ with each other. Oh, that's worthy of a lot of praise there. And then third, and I close with this, to identify perhaps an area where you do feel the most tension between the, your family of origin or your current family situation and the family of God. Where is the tension? Maybe it's in how you work. Maybe it's in how you view money. Maybe it's in a particular way you relate. Maybe it's in your service or how you give money. I don't know where it is, but to relate, what is that area? What is one area of tension? And and, and allow that to almost be like a case study for you to work out. How do I approach this tension as a member of God's family first? And then out of that, love into and speak truth into and and serve my existing family or, or the people around me as a member of God's family. Confess, praise, and identify. We'll be exploring some of these very uh, things we've just touched on today in the weeks ahead as we, as we look at what does it mean to be part of these two families and how do we bring this all together. These will be things we bring up again as we go on in this series. But for today, if you would stand with me, I want to pray for us in conclusion. Father, we are thankful that you You've allowed us to be members of your family for all of us who confess you, Jesus, to think that you would redraw the family line to include us is an astonishing, 
life-changing, history-making inclusion. And we celebrate you and we thank you. But we also acknowledge, Lord, that, that in that, we who want to love our families, whether that be mothers or fathers or kids or uncles or brothers or sisters, we want to love them with your love. That sometimes you really need help to do that well. Whether we have broken families or families that are, are, are more healthy, we, we, need to, we need to love them well as members of your family. And so I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we continue to wrestle with this, as we live into our primary identity as members of your family. Thank you for being our Father. Jesus, thank you for being our brother. Spirit, thank you for binding us together, one in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.